1: With Donovan and Ken, episode number 10. Episode number 10. Indeed. All right, so uh,
0: we are starting a a new process where we're recording these over uh, the internet. So we're no longer face-to-face. No, which is helpful because we're not always in the same city. Very rarely are we in the same city, hence the reason uh, we don't get these recorded as often as we'd like.
1: Exactly. So, through the magic of Skype and a variety of other pieces of software. We are doing this over the intertubes, interwebs, inter-whatevers. So this is great. So I'm in Phoenix. And I am in Dallas, Texas. Down in the uh, southwest of the U.S. And we are bringing this to you over the internet. Okay, great. So, All right. So today we're going to do two different publishers.
0: We're going to do a... Uh, a uh, the first book that came out of a publisher called Peter Pan Records, which would release a comic book and a uh, what was it 45? Is that what they were called? 45. 45. Uh, mm-hmm. LP that would also play the uh, the comic book so that little kids could uh, read along as uh, as somebody read it to them. Quite the gimmick. Yeah, having the 45
1: come along with the comic.
0: Why audio books are still popular even now? I mean, this came I... out in
1: 1975. I know that, but uh, I, I think the audio, I think the R- RPM record uh, was also meant to give uh, sound effects and things like that to help enhance the reading process, not replace it like your average audiobook. But I don't know. I don't know if it
0: had uh, uh, I don't know if it had an, or, uh, sound effects or not. I have several of these. Uh, yeah. They came out with several. Right. Uh, the ones I have and I don't have an LP player to listen to them so yeah that oh, I that'd listen be to, interesting like, yeah I listened to like the first five minutes of it and yeah. it was just one guy but he was playing all the characters and it was actually pretty entertaining cool
1: well as but, we'll see there's a little critter in here that uh, puts out some sound waves which affects the crew and I just wondered if they attempted to do anything with that uh, that sound. Captain's log,
0: Stardate
1: 54-4. Meow. Bones, can't you keep that thing quiet?
0: Sorry, Jim. Doesn't like a cage. Um, and then we're going to jump to uh, two stories that came out of the third Star Trek The Manga series uh, released by Tokyo Pop. So the first comic we'll get into is called Star Trek Passage to Moav. Captain's Log, Stardate 5440. We have been assigned to... Bones! All right, Jim. I'll take it down to sick bay and house it with our experimental animals. Just remember, I was prepared to treat an ambassador, not to babysit an ill-tempered tabby. I understand, Bones. We're all upset about it. All right, so let's go ahead and get into the synopsis. It's called The Passage to Moab, uh, and on the book itself, it says that it's Power Records, but uh, later publishing says that it's Peter Pan Records. So uh, that's the, the name of the publisher. came out in 1975, I don't know when, uh, what month. All right, so it starts off with, uh, the uh, on board the Bridge of the Enterprise, Kirk is attempting to record his captain's log when he is interrupted by the meowing of a small caged animal. Uh, Later, this is identified as a wall, W-A-U-L. All right, Kirk orders McCoy to take the animal off the bridge, and Kirk is able to finish his recording, and uh, this acts as a way to inform the reader as to what's going on. So the Enterprise has been ordered to transport the wall uh, for an ambassador uh, to the planet of Moav, which is trying to enter the Federation uh, but hasn't quite uh, succeeded yet. Kirk checks with Sulu on the ETA, and is informed that it will be slightly over two weeks until they get to Moab. Uh Kirk and Spock grumble about this assignment. Seems like they were planning to transport an ambassador himself, but then found out it was a pet. Uh, McCoy intercoms and says that uh, the wall has escaped and that a uh, yeoman Prentiss uh, was injured. Uh, they suspect that the wall is hiding somewhere on the ship. Uh, Kirk orders the crew to try to capture it without harming it, uh, and then Uhura makes this announcement uh, shipwide. All right, so meanwhile, Spock uh, meets up with uh, Prentiss and McCoy, and uh, Spock starts to explain how he's going to be careful when he starts meowing mid-sentence. Uh, McCoy asks him about it, and he tries to deny it, but he continues to do so. As uh, Spock leaves, McCoy tries to confirm with Prentiss that he heard the, the same thing, and then Prentiss starts uh, meowing as well. So McCoy is soon uh, meowing himself, and, uh, and then it seemed like now they could understand that each one of them is doing it. So aboard the bridge, Hora informs the captain that she is getting some strange reports of fighting uh, near sick Bay, and that the reports are coming in uh, filled with cat sounds. Um, she piped the intercom over to uh, Kirk so he can hear it, and he orders to continue to monitor and inform security. Uh, just then, Spock arrives on the bridge in a tattered uniform. He tells Kirk that uh, they had the creature cornered, but when he was flooded with intense emotions of fear and panic, uh, the crew members started to lash out and fight with each other. Spock uh, then starts to meow again. Uh, the meowing Spock's Uh, Excuse me, the meowing Spock surprises Kirk. And then McCoy calls in telling him that sickbay is full of crewmen with injuries and are acting very violently that they're having to be sedated. Uh, And then he starts with the cat noises as well and informs the captain that everyone is having some some the same type of panic attacks that Spock was just describing. Uh, Spock concludes that it is uh, caused by the wall that he's uh, somehow telepathically projecting this. Uh, the more frightened the wall gets, the the worse the crew is going to be behaving. So, based on the Spock suggestion, Kirk contacts the wall's owner on Moav, and basically accuses him of planning this whole attack on the Enterprise. So the ambassador denies it and is very offended that he's being accused of this. Uh, Kirk tells, or he tells Kirk that uh, he the only way of capturing the the creature is to shoot it from at least 300 meters, which is not an option here on the ship. So Spock leaves to try to catch it with the net again. Kirk comes with him, and uh, they find the the little monster. Or he's not a monster. He's looked more like a cat type thing. Uh, and then they're suddenly overcome with this panic and fear uh, as they get closer and closer to the monster, uh, the little uh, wall, wall. Uh, just then, a lieutenant, Merez, shows up, and she is not affected by the animal, and she just calmly picks it up and is able to soothe it. Uh, Merez is uh, put in charge of the animal, and Kirk informs the ambassador that it is safely captured, and uh, informs the ambassador informs him that the uh, animal is pregnant and should give birth to uh, babies before they reach Moav. And then Kirk, Spock, and Ahura um, have a little joke about that and basically say that uh, Lieutenant Merez is going to be a mother. The end.
1: So, Ken, what did you think? Um, I thought uh, the illustrations were pretty good. I thought the quality was not bad. Uh, Spock looks pretty good, and uh, Kirk looks pretty good, McCoy looks pretty good. Uh, but i got to say, the story itself, I'm not too crazy about it.
0: Well, it was written in 1975, so that's the same time that, uh, you know, Gold Key was coming out with theirs, and, you know, we're still a couple of years out from Star Trek The Motion Picture, but, uh, so obviously this was written more towards kids and not, you know, the teenagers and young adults, which some of the later comics are. Uh, Overall, I thought this story wasn't too terribly bad. Um, you, You mentioned that the artwork was good, and I agree with you on the ones that you mentioned, but uh, <laughs> it kind of messed
1: up on a few of them. I think uh, I think the person that did the color isn't doesn't somebody else normally do the color than other people that do the drawings? Or, well, whatever.
0: Yeah, I'm sure it is. Fine. So yeah, so basically, Ahura looks like Ahura uh, as far as the outline and the shape and everything, but she's colored as a white, blue eyed, blonde haired woman. Amazing which is a little off. She looks good, but not Ohura. Right. So when I was first thumbing through it, I kept seeing that uh, before I was reading it, and I was like, oh, it's another, uh, another uh, communications officer. And then when I was reading it, he calls her Ohura, and I'm like, hey, that's not quite right. And, and then. That, uh, and that's not the only example. No, there's, there's two other ones.
1: Uh, you go ahead and tell us what the next obvious one is. Well, the next obvious one is the fact that Sulu is not only Japanese, but he's Afro-American. Yeah. Well, at, least, he, I, at least I assume he, he's American, but he's he right. a black man, and he, he's, he's got an afro, and uh, it's just just not expected. <laughs> right. So
0: this this is obviously not just a miscoloration. This is he was drawn as being a black man. Exactly. Yeah, and again, he's. At first I thought he was just a different uh, helmsman, but he's actually referred to as Sulu, so it is supposed to be him.
1: Yeah, and it's an interracial crew in the original series, so it's like, why jumping around like that? Did, well, did, 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 did they want to sell it to uh, young black males? I don't know. but
0: I don't either, and and I don't even know if it was intentional. I mean, a lot of times these things, especially if they're produced <laughs> for like kids and stuff, are just kind yeah. of – cranked out and, and put out and I, I don't mean to bash whoever worked on this because overall I thought the quality of the art was really good um, but yeah just those two things were a little you know little head scratchers on those two <laughs> what was the third one the third one was lieutenant Merez so oh, well, well I, I don't remember her was she in the show she was in the show uh, but not the uh, original three seasons she was in the two seasons of the animated series Oh,
1: how interesting.
0: Yeah, and she is very cat-like in the animated series. I mean, she has, like, uh, she basically looks like a lion. She has this really long mane of auburn, like, oranges-type hair with uh, cat ears poking out of it, really uh, feline-looking eyes and nose. Uh, that's how she looked in the the animated series, and she's been brought back in some of the newer comics, and she looks that way as well, has a tail and everything. Um <laughs> uh, but here in this comic, uh, they draw her as a blue-skinned human. So she doesn't really have any feline features at all, even though the text of the book says she does, and that's why she can hold them all. Uh, but uh, but yeah, she's – I thought that was weird that they would draw her as just a regular human woman with blue skin, but then refer to her as being feline.
1: Yeah. Well, her, her, her eyes are very – is a little, are a little different. Like Her eyebrows are more arched, although not quite a Vulcan arch, but still. Um, but yeah, you're right. Other than that, she looks normal.
0: Right. Yeah, very normal. So, And she's blue-skinned, so she kind of looks like uh, Evil Lynn from the old uh, He-Man cartoon. I don't know if you ever watched that. That might have been after your time. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of old. <laughs> but anyways, I grew up on He-Man and Masters of the Universe, and when I was reading this, she looks just like Evil Land did on that cartoon. All right, so aside from that, uh, those three, uh, three things, I thought the story was, was, wasn't too terribly bad, and the artwork I thought was really good. I thought they got the facial features of the Spock,
1: Kirk, and McCoy pretty dead on. Yeah, I think it was good. I think the, uh, the hardware wasn't too far off, although I will say in some of the uh, drawings of the Enterprise, the, uh, in some shots, the uh, engineering section doesn't look like it's the right shape. Exactly. Yes, yeah. um, but other than that, the the uh, so so Donovan, how the how the nacelles? You are the nacelle expert. Uh, I think it had the little bubbles in the cells, didn't it? Um, I, I'm looking the drawings. I'm just scanning right now. I it's from the wrong angle. I can't see the very back of the engine. Mm. But the sides look right, and the vents look fine. But whatever, uh, it it didn't
0: jump out at me as being wrong. So right, right, right. So uh, these pages aren't numbered. So I, I'm basically what I'm what I'm going to tell you about the page numbers and my comment. I'm basically starting on the first page um, after the cover, which is the uh-huh. basically like a title page, right. as being page one. So the first thing I had was why was there a an animal on on board the Enterprise uh, on the on the bridge? Yeah. I, mean, I understand I understand that it they thought it was an ambassador when they went to go get it, but Obviously, at this point, they knew that it wasn't. So, I mean, is it just uh, for plot sake to kind of speed things along so that you know what it is?
1: Yeah, yeah. And plus, they usually start things off on the bridge. But, but I completely agree with you. I mean, there there wasn't even uh, there wasn't was there even an attempt to explain it? I don't think so. Well, they basically have McCoy grumbling that
0: he thought he was he. He thought this was going to be an ambassador trip, and he was surprised that it was a a, an
1: animal. But aside from that, that's that's it. Yeah, it doesn't say anything about why the damn thing's on the bridge. (laughs) It's like the last thing you would, the last place you'd want it. Right.
0: So here on page, uh, hey, you know they are they are numbered, huh? At the very oh, bottom the of the corner. page, there's little numbers. Bottom right corner. Yeah, yeah. so on page three, uh, you see the nacelles, the, the back end of the nacelles, and they, they look like the uh, the bubble ones.
1: And that's also the page where we have the uh, black Sulu. And another guy who's in the, well, I guess he's in the uh, Navigator Station, and he looks more like Sulu, but not quite Sulu. He looks kind of like
0: John Cush- Cushectomy. Cushectomy. Cusack
1: to me. Cusack? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. But you
0: notice that the Black Sulu and uh this other guy are both are both wearing uh blue shirts instead of the the yellow shirts that they would have worn in the show.
1: Ah, good point. And we if can't get also, any of the colors right.
0: Yeah. Also if you notice that on page two, uh when it shows McCoy uh taking the uh the little wall out of the out of the bridge, he's wearing yeah. his short sleeve tunic. Sure. Uh, but the next time we see him, which is on uh, page four or five, he's wearing the long sleeves. So he, he must have got changed after the little guy got loose.
1: Yeah, good point, good point.
0: So also on page four, kind of before it really shows you that it's Ahura, there's this weird shot where the, you know, what would be the camera was is like underneath the uh, uh, communication officer's desk. So you get like this shot of... Uh, just these legs, uh, a torso, and an arm of uh, Uhura, and then you see uh, Kirk and Spock in the background. Right. Why didn't they have these shots in the old show? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Under the desk shot. It just seems like
1: a, a weird angle to try to it is, draw but, this scene. But it does show off uh, Uhura's torso and legs. Huh?
0: Yep. And you notice she's wearing black pants instead of the skin that we would have seen in the old show. Ooh. So I guess I guess just having uh, bare legs was too risque for a children's book.
1: There you go. All right, so although, uh, I don't really – Although I what? must say, especially when you see – well, we'll get to later pages where we're seeing the um, cat-like crewman, and uh, there's a lot of cleavage going on. Yeah, we'll, there we'll, is. We'll get to that. <laughs> I just want
0: to uh, – real quick about the little guy, the, the wall. Uh-huh. If you look at my notes, I, I sent you a couple of pictures of critters that looked very similar to this that Marvel Comics uh, produced for two of their uh, like expanded universe type series for other science fiction uh, franchises. So the first one was uh, – there's a character that they did for the Doctor Who comic book series called a Meep, and he looks exactly like this little guy except he's, like, fatter. So he looks like a little round ball, but he has, like, the same type of head.
1: Hmm. And ears.
0: Yeah. And then uh, the next one was when uh, Marvel was doing the Star Wars comics. And they came out with a little thing called Hojibs, H-O-O-J-I-B-S. And they, too, look just like this little guy. Uh, except they have, like, this little weird antenna thing that comes right out of the forehead. Hmm. But aside from that, it looks exactly like this little uh, uh, this little critter. Hmm. So, uh, And then all the Marvel... Uh, little advertisements throughout this uh, throughout this comic made me kept making me wonder as, if this was some sort of Marvel comic that was adapted to uh, for the book or something or some sort of tie-in. You know, yeah, offshoot of Marvel or something like that. I don't right. know. Who knows? I just thought they looked a lot like. All right, so. Uh... Overall, you, you didn't care for the story about the little critter taking over the Enterprise
1: or with the, yeah. with the feelings? The the little pet cat that was able to influence uh, the crew to the point that there was uh, uh, peril to the crew. I, I, I didn't like that. I, I, just, I, I just hate that kind of stuff. Mm. Not crazy about it. But I will say that there's um, – I, I like how they brought out uh, McCoy's uh, little mischievousness on page 5 where after the wall has uh, attacked uh, the the, the other crewman that was helping McCoy um, Spock comes up to him and they're going to go and try to find it and uh, Spock is like all gung ho about going after it and then McCoy says uh, it took the branch to the left Spock I don't think it went too far it's probably cowering in a dark corner somewhere nearby waiting for kindly old Spock to pick it up (laughs) <laughs> and then yeah, they that's pretty funny. And then they got then the the guy they got mauled by this thing shows his arm uh and it's like that's great I love it He's Do like see know.
0: my arm if you're going to pick it up be careful
1: <laughs> I like that uh, yep. And then
0: and then spot meowing right afterwards you like that too I bet
1: Boy I hated that <laughs> So so yeah. so so this little critter through sounds it's emitting whatever is able to get crewmen to make, like, cat sounds, and then eventually starts affecting their behavior. Right, it, like, fills them with whatever emotion that it's ha- it's having,
0: so yeah. uh, I- I'm going to reserve some comments I have for this story uh, a little bit later in the show, mm-hmm. but uh, uh, I- I- I'll just... Just remind me, and I'll tell you some stuff about this later. I don't want to spoil anything that's going to be <laughs> in uh, one of the later stories that we're going to talk about. Uh, fine, 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 So, uh, there on page uh, page seven, uh, when Kirk is hearing the fighting and the, the 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 things on the on the intercom, and he just says, "Okay, well, turn it off and keep an eye on it and let security know."
1: <laughs> and
0: I, I was like. That's not Kirk. He
1: would, <laughs> he'd
0: be jumping down there to start fighting along with him. I mean, yeah. where, where's our Kirk, man of action? But that is a good shot of a horror there on page seven.
1: Yeah, actually, two good shots. Yeah.
0: And yeah, and her face does look a little like Nicole Nichols, uh, but not quite. So I don't know if it really is just a miscoloring,
1: or they just. Drew it the wrong way. Wrong, yeah, I mean, you know. it, it, the 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 shape, the voluptuous shape, is definitely Nichelle. Uh, but um, the face and and definitely the eyes and stuff, forget it. But then towards the end of the comic, which we'll get to, there's a shot later on, like near the end of the comic, actually page twelve, that will well we'll get to it. But it looks it does look like Nichelle uh, uh, Nichelle Nichols. Would they just didn't get the coloring right?
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. They're on the bottom. That last panel. Yeah. Uh, bottom right, right panel ad- on page twelve. Yeah, right underneath that really weird shot of the Enterprise with the where the engineering section is like way in front of the saucer section.
1: Yeah. What? Okay. Well. Okay. Well, fine. We're here. Yes. It. I don't get that at all.
0: Yeah, and then they they on the next page they kind of do it again, but not quite as bad. So
1: I I don't. It's not supposed to be the nacelle. It is supposed to be the engineering section, right? Well, uh, okay, so now we're talking about page 13, bottom of page 13. Uh, no, and... I'm still talking about page 12. Oh. Well, that's the only thing it could be. I mean, well, okay. When I first saw it, I thought, hey, this thing looks like um, like the engineering section. But it can't be the engineering section. It's just because just the angle is like perpendicular to the ship instead of being along the lines of the ship – but i suppose really the only thing it could be is um is a nacelle but it's too low in the shot it mm. should be higher up next to the saucer section
0: yeah you're and right i, mean, I, it, that, I thought it, it was i thought it was the engineering section and i was like why are they putting the the bri- the, the saucer so far down the shaft of
1: the engineering section but maybe it is supposed to be in a nacelle in just weird angle i don't know but it is, it's not good and now that you bring it up Th- on page 13, the angles look a little weird too, although not yeah. as bad as uh, page 12.
0: Yeah, it looks like the, the little arms that connect the nacelle to the Enterprise, like it's like flat so that the nacelle and the and this, uh, engineering section are on the same
1: level. Very mm-hmm. odd. And then also the, the pylon, the, the, the broad pylon that connects the saucer section with the engineering section, that doesn't look right either. I guess not, but it I mean, looks like may, well, maybe the saucer section's a little tilted down or something. You mean? Uh, well, we we don't want to dwell on this too much because the peep, <laughs> folks out there can't don't know what we're talking about. They can't see it unless they happen to, to have copies of it. But right. that 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 section that where it's actually coming up into the saucer section does not look right at all.
0: Yeah. No, to you're me. right. Yeah, I agree. So when Kirk just starts like yelling at the ambassador for. Uh, Trying, you know, planning this whole thing. Is it right. because he's under the influence of the cat?
1: I, I assume so. But at times, uh, Kirk can be a jerk. <laughs> but, but I mean, I, up, until, I, I,
0: up until he starts talking to the, the the guy, he seems okay, and then just all
1: of a sudden he's like, it's all your fault. Yeah. I, I think it's meant to be an indication that Kirk is starting to come out of the influence, but... But he never meows, and usually that's the first time he does meow, but later. You're right. Right. Hmm. And the other thing is, Kirk's been up in the uh, bridge this whole time, the top of the ship. And I don't know where this this thing has been this uh, the wall, but pretty far away from Kirk. I mean, except of course when he was in the uh, on the bridge in the very beginning. So I don't know this this wall thing has some mango range. Right, which I'll
0: uh, I'll touch upon that here in a little bit too. Uh, when after we review another story, I don't want to give away anything. But uh, I, I did like it when uh, that Lieutenant Morez was in the story because you know she was somebody that was established in the cartoon. Never been on screen in any of the movies or any of the uh, television shows. Uh, she's made quite a few appearances in the comic book. Um, uh, but uh, I just thought it was. I mean, obviously whoever wrote this knew enough about Star Trek. I think it was just the people drawing it didn't quite know that much about Star Trek. Because right. Spock, Spock talks about having the pet she which was only mentioned once in, uh, in the original series. And then you got to see it once in the animated series. So I just thought whoever wrote this really knew a lot about Star Trek and was trying to make it as authentic as possible, mm-hmm. I
1: think. Uh, that's true, and they and there's a special emphasis on the uh, cartoon series because there, as you mentioned, there are multiple references to it. A character pulled into it and mentioning the shalot because, quite frankly, um, I haven't. When I was a kid, I saw those uh, cartoons, and that was about it. So there's a lot of details I don't recall, right? Because uh, I had no idea that lady was in the cartoon series. Well, you didn't recognize her. I, yeah.
0: I tried to send you a picture. Uh, over in my notes if you if you look at her you might it might trigger ring, ring a bell, but uh, she definitely looks like a little lion. N- nothing like nothing like she does here. But what's funny is that uh, she was also brought back into the, the first um, ongoing series uh, that DC comics did. One of the writers of that comic book series was Peter David and I guess he has a thing uh, for trying to tie in all types of continuity. Uh, so he brought back uh, Lieutenant Morez and also, um, and I forgot his name, uh, the three-armed guy that was also from the cartoon. Uh, he has like an arm that comes straight out of his chest. So he brought these two back into like the uh, movie-type timeline, and uh, and I thought they worked pretty well in that comic book series. And then uh, when when that series got rebooted, uh, they were just gone. And I think I think they've been brought back into the new frontier. Novel series that Peter David wrote. Right. Uh, But aside from that, I don't think, I can't think of too many other appearances they've had. So again, I was really happy to see that, uh, even though she didn't look anything like what she was supposed to. All right. The only other thing I have, um, and then I'll let you finish up what you have, is I didn't really care for the joke at the end when they were talking about how Lieutenant Merez is going to be a, a mother. Just because she happens to be feline, and, and the wall is also a feline. Uh, I thought that was a little uh, specious, if you, uh, if you will. Yeah. I don't know, is that a word?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I've never heard it before. It could be.
0: Well, I mean, what would you call it if uh, if you're making fun of somebody else's Species. So
1: I I just wondered,
0: if, if it was a telepathic monkey taking over the Enterprise, does that mean that Kurt could have walked up to it and, and buddied up with it without any problem? I guess we'll find out. <laughs> <All> Foreshadowing. <right>.
1: <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Close enough. Yeah, so I just wanted to comment, just throw a few things out there. Is I, I do like at the end of the story where um, where the ambassador is recognizing uh, the fact that the Federation is a diverse uh, organization and that their strength in diversity and that if this uh, this particular crewman wasn't on board uh, they would have been in real trouble. Um, so I do kind of like the um, the thing where they underscore the diversity end of it. So that was good. And um, uh, I, I'm somehow moved at the end of the, the, the story where they're making the motherhood joke so kirk makes the motherhood joke and then uh spock says no captain and then ohura's sitting there and goes meow it's like <laughs> yeah ohura yeah exactly it's you're kidding funny. you <laughs>
0: so i like that part of it but and it's funny she's she's the way she's sitting on that chair and she looks more like the way to paul kept sitting on the captain's chair when when she got to there in the Enterprise series oh. where she's just kind of setting up, not actually leaning back in the chair, but setting up so that, uh, certain assets are, uh, thrust <laughs> forward.
1: Front and center.
0: <laughs> and I don't remember her sitting like that in the TV show, but they didn't spend a lot of time on wide angle shots like that where you got to see her whole body. Yeah. So anyways, overall I enjoyed the, sto- the story. I mean, it's a little old, so, and it was written for kids and it was written for, uh, like a tie-in type thing, not necessarily a comic book proper. But overall, I thought the story was actually pretty good.
1: Um, and, and that's great. I think it was the weakest story of the three we have today. Um, hmm. Although I think drawing-wise, overall, it might have been the best one. Uh, although uh, I will say that the manga books that we're going to go into next have their own special Japanese twist on them that have their benefits. But, yeah, I, I wasn't it's, – it's the weakest of, of, of the three stories, I think. Hmm. All right. Well, let's go
0: straight into, the, uh, into the, the next story then.
1: All right. The next one is Art of War, which is by Will Wheaton. Will Wheaton, which I think is great. Uh, it, it's just amazing because uh, you know, Wesley Crusher can write. Uh, and I and I did very much without uh, jumping into my comments on the on the the book ahead of the synopsis. Uh, I thought it was very good, and I think Will did a great job.
0: Yeah, this is actually his second one that he wrote for this series. Um, this was the third book, In the second book he wrote a story called Cura Te Ipsum, <laughs> which I have not read yet. But uh, I mean, and I don't know, I don't know of any other stories he's written. But uh, I thought he did of this one i thought he did a great job
1: but uh, i'll let you go ahead and get started okay so the uh, story opens up in a uh courtroom scene and interestingly enough uh there we see that there is a split scene on the on the opening page where we see on the left hand side a federation courtroom tribunal with none other than captain kirk uh seated and in the right half of the picture we have a klingon courtroom very interesting a la some of the Star Trek movies, uh, the style of the way it's written or drawn, where Captain Kirk apparently is on trial in left pane and Commander Kring is on the right-hand side. And apparently they are both uh, in the process of being court-martialed. If Kirk loses, he's going to be court-martialed. If Kring loses, he will be executed. So there's a lot of things at stake here, although I must say more for Kring. Anyway... (laughs) Uh, they, both, uh, they both plead not guilty in a very dramatic way at the exact same time. So there's a lot of mirroring going on here in the art, in the, the way they've drawn things, uh, the, the Federation side of things, human side of things, and the Klingon um, side of things, which is pretty cool. Okay, so they go ahead and both plead guilty, and the trial begins with both of the defendants telling their story from their own points of view. A Federation mining colony transmits a distress signal to the Enterprise. Kirk heads out to the rescue. Kring heads over to plunder the mined Tritanium. The Enterprise crew beam down and are met by uh, Chief Mining Engineer Ripley. Uh, And of course, that is nothing to do with uh, Alien. He informs them that he lost 89 of their people And another 40 are missing after the uh, collapse inside the mining tunnels. McCoy heads off to treat the injured, while Ripley informs Kirk and Spock that there was an explosion in a hydrogen storage area. Just then, they are attacked by Klingons. A firefight ensues, a very action-packed one, by the way. Uh, Kirk shoots at least one Klingon, maybe two. One Federation guy gets shot assumed he was a red shirt because, of course, these are black and white comics. Kirk and Kring start fighting hand-to-hand when there is another tunnel collapse. Kirk and Kring fall into the huge hole that is uh, created. They land at the bottom of the pit, but Kirk is behind some debris, and Kring does not see him. Their communications equipment uh, does not work, so Kring heads in the mine to find a way up, and Kirk follows him. Spock informs the Enterprise, meanwhile, uh, with Scotty in command, about the attack and that they have subdued all of the Klingons. As Kirk is following Kring's footprints, a rock is hurtled at him, and he barely dodges it. Kirk throws a few stones himself, and tries to flush out Kring. After a time, he gives up and continues to follow with a mining axe as a weapon. Kirk finds Kring in a lower section of the mine, then starts to climb down. Kring is attacked by a few throw, uh, thrown axe handles at him, and is hit once. Kirk comes down and confronts him with the axe That when they are both attacked by thrown rocks. Now they know it was something else attacking them, with the stones and axe handles. It turns out it's a, it is a Juru who are known for infesting mining colonies and are very formidable enemies. And indeed, this thing looks uh, pretty nasty. Looks uh, like something right out of a nightmare. Kirk attacks it, and when Giroux looks about to to win, Kring attacks, and they are able to kill it. And actually, it's Kring that kills it, uh, with Kirk uh, distracting him. Kring then starts to attack Kirk again in a surprise move, when the ground collapses and Kring falls in. Kirk is able to grab him and pull him up to safety against Kring's calls to not be saved. They have to end up working together to build a bridge over the chasm that has hundreds of Jiru eggs that are starting to hatch. All of this is near the hydrogen, so they assume that the Jiru was the cause of the explosion all along. On the way to the surface, Kirk quotes Art of War... Uh, which, or The Art of War, which is a, a very old novel or uh, writing, not a novel Know thy enemy and know thyself You need not fear the outcome of a thousand ba- battles Kring admits that it is rare human wisdom and that Klingons have similar philosophers Kirk allows the Klingon to leave despite Spock's objections Kring agrees to leave despite being accused of being a coward by his crew The outcome of the two trials is that Kirk is cleared and they hope that this is the first step of building a lasting relationship with the Klingons. Kring is accused of being a liar and coward and in the end is executed. The last shot is of Kirk in bed on the left and Kring in a coffin on the right with Kirk saying that he hopes the symbolism of the bridge they built together is not lost on Kring. The end. Okay. So, Um, there's a lot of subtlety in the, um, in the book that's, uh, hard to get across unless you see the pictures and there, you know, more time is spent on some of the subtle, uh, subtle things that are going on, uh, especially during the trial, but, um, I thought it was pretty good. I mean, there was good action, uh, there was good conflict, always good to see, uh, you know, Kirk fighting Klingons, one of my favorite things about, um, Star Trek, uh, three, um, and it had some, the story had some meat to it. Uh, I, I uh, anyway, so I like, I like the, uh, the fact that, uh, Kring was trying to defend himself talking about how he really did, uh, uphold, um, the Klingon, uh, tradition of being indebted to people that save your life. Um, And how basically through politics, the politics of his underlings on the ship wanting to take over the ship uh, as commander uh, and first officer, uh, and of the politician slash uh, prosecuting attorney, uh, Klingon prosecuting attorney, that were basically all finding him guilty, not because of what he did, but because of the benefits that they would gain from it. I, I thought it was great. Loved it.
0: No, I agree. I thought it was really good. And I Wesley. even like I, re- I really liked the uh the artwork. I thought it really worked for the story. Uh like you said, the the monster looked really cool. He had like what three or four eyes. He looked he looked really hideous. Yeah. And uh you know, when you see Kirk and stuff, uh when you see Kirk and them fighting it just I thought the action was really uh you could really feel the action just by these simple little drawings. Because uh, 'cause they're all there's no color. They're all pretty uh you know, just you know, just line drawings, really. Uh, there's not a lot of shading going on and yet it just really puts you into the, the, the moment. And, uh, I thought it worked really well. Yeah.
1: And especially those action scenes, uh, showing hyper action. Uh, that is very much in the manga style. And I think they use that very well. I, I will say that I'm not crazy about, I mean, the, the, the Kirk drawing looks nothing like William Shatner. No, uh, so that's there. But on the other hand, uh, during the fight and during the fall and everything, uh, Kirk's shirt is ripped a lot. So, you know, hey, that, that's Kirk. you know? Yeah, I thought, I thought that was great. That was great. And, and I wonder if, um, if it was Will Wheaton that uh, had wanted that kind of thing or specified it or whether it was uh, just clever work by the, uh, by, by the illustrators. But I, I thought it was quite good yeah, and let's just clear up something real quick. The reason why you're pronouncing his name that way is why? <laughs> For those of you that might not be fans of Family Guy, an excellent te- television series, um, Will Wheaton has actually will Wheaton has actually been on the show many times, and there is actually one scene where he actually is playing himself, where uh, he and uh, Stewie, Stewie. Is um, is is going off on Will's name, so, right where he pronoun- he uh, emphasizes the W in Wheated. Uh, and the H, Wheated. oh that's right, so, yeah that 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 that's pretty good so now every time I say his name I I, I slip into a little bit of Stewie,
0: <laughs> okay
1: so th- this one also doesn't have page numbers so
0: again I'm uh and I actually wrote in my book so this is uh. Kind of new for me because I usually don't oh, write in my books at all. But all right, oh, because the, no, this is, you oh, no, this is such a books, thick man. book, and there was like no way we were going to be able to talk about certain things, uh, which is funny because here uh, on the third story in this book, because there's four stories in this book together, starting with the third story, there's page numbers. <laughs> so it was oh, just the first weird. two that don't have page numbers. So, uh, so basically, I took the first the first page that had uh, after the title page, which is the one that shows the courtroom as page one. So, uh, I wanted to just jump over to uh, page five when uh, when uh, Kring is on trial and he says the Federation Starship Enterprise was already in orbit when we arrived, and then you get like the crowd grumbling, and it actually says "grumble, grumble, Kirk, grumble, grumble, spot, grumble, Patak, grumble." Just huh. <laughs> I thought that was awesome. I mean, it's it just, uh, you know, I thought it was very comical. Uh, and it gets the point across that, I mean, you can almost hear it from the, in the show, because they're always in the in the old, in the, basically Star Trek 5, uh, or no, excuse me, Star Trek 6, when they had that whole trial scene. Right. And that's the way it was when when they would say something, and then all the Klingons would be grumbling and stuff. I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> Although I thought Patak was... Uh, they never used that word in in uh, the old Star Trek, right? That was something that came up out of Next Generation? I think so. Yeah. And uh, like what you said, Kirk doesn't look quite like Kirk. In fact, all the everybody that's in Starfleet except for McCoy and uh, Spock, to me, looked a lot alike. So when they were doing that big fight later on, uh, I couldn't tell who was shooting who. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think it was Kirk shooting that guy, uh, maybe even Kirk shooting two guys, but I couldn't tell. It could have just been a red shirt. Who knows? The one that <laughs> guy killed.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's hard to tell. Although I will say that the uh, the hair in one scene where, where some Federation guy shot a, a Klingon with a knife, um, the hair is sticking straight up in a kind of choppy thing. So either... Kirk's hair changed, uh, or that's somebody else. Is that the guy who gets stabbed with that knife, or after he gets stabbed? No, it's it's when he's actually firing point blank at a Klingon using a phaser. Hold on one second. Oh, oh that's definitely Kirk. Now that I see it, now that I look at it. Where's this at on page? Oh, page, page. So, six. so they're in the fight, and yes, at the yeah. very top of the page, Kirk is pulling his uh, phaser out. So you think that's Kirk? I think it's Kirk. So, so Spock gets hit. Kirk is pissed. And he's going for vengeance. He pulls out the phaser. He shoots the one guy. He's down behind the rock. Then it looks like he shot the second die, guy. He's still behind the rock. And in the third panel, or actually fourth panel, depending on how you want to kind of count it, there's a, a guy, there's a Klingon with a knife coming up behind him. And then, obviously, he turned, because you can see the motion along his, his hand, his right hand with the phaser. Right. And he turns around and shoots point blank the uh, Klingon that was coming up behind him. And then,
0: and then the panel right underneath that—I mean—is that the guy who actually gets shot? He—I don't know, man. He has different hair too, but unfortunately, the the panel where the guy gets shot is kind of broken out in between two pages, so the it's kind of hard to see because of the crease of the page. Yeah. But uh, yeah, but somebody got shot. Somebody got shot. Look, looks good. And, and Spock didn't get shot. He the the tricorder that he was looking at <coughs> got shot, and it's a really cool. Oh, drawing.
1: Okay, okay.
0: That he's there checking out. He's using his tricorder, and then suddenly the Klingons uh, sneak attack, and they shoot him, and it just blows this tricorder up in his hand. He's lucky and the they...
1: tricorder blew up, and not him.
0: Exactly. But it's. I thought it was a pretty cool drawing, and they actually yeah. show it twice from two different points of view. One from Kirk's telling, and one from Kring's telling. Which again, I thought lended well to the to the type of story that we're getting. Basically, like a he said, she said type thing.
1: Right. I think the weapons look good. The Klingon disruptors are drawn yes. well, and so are the Federation phasers.
0: I agree, Very and I good. like that the the real close up where it shows that they're shooting at each other at the same time. Yeah. And then later on, when on uh, page ten, when the when they actually fall into the cave in, and you still you see Kring still shooting at him as they
1: fall, I thought that was a pretty cool shot. Right. 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 And luckily, uh, Kirk had fallen below the uh, disruptor blast.
0: Yeah, because it's going like right over his uh, shoulder. Right. Maybe that's why his shirt got ripped, because somehow that uh, no. phaser energy uh, singed off the, the seam. Uh, it, it ripped because he's Kirk. <sighs> exactly. And Kirk, you know. So you just think of Sigourney Weaver saying, uh, does that help? Then she's like that to Tim Allen when he rips off his
1: shirt there. and. Uh, <laughs> An excellent movie, by the way.
0: Oh, no, no, no. It was when he was doing the little roll thing, and they were just walking right beside him. Where it's Yeah. Past. Does that help? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a great movie.
1: That is a great movie. Obviously made by people that were true fans of the series. As I think this was. I mean, obviously, Will Wheaton wrote
0: it, uh, but I think the the people who drew this uh, were fans of the series, too. Now, when I first got this, I thought it was something that was actually released in Japan. Oh. Uh, but in doing a little bit of research, uh, it's actually an American made uh, company that makes things in the Japanese style.
1: Oh, that's interesting.
0: Yeah. Because I lived in Japan for uh, two years. And, I mean, it wasn't uncommon to see stuff in magazines and this type of artwork for. You know, American franchises. I don't ever remember seeing like a Star Trek comic book, uh-huh. but I do remember seeing like Star Wars comic books and other type of uh, kind of like pin-up type things where they showed, you know, scenes or something from various franchises, like um, uh, Matrix and stuff was coming out. The two Matrix sequels came out while I was there. So I saw a lot of that. That was actually produced for the Japanese audience, which I thought this was part of that, but it's not.
1: Hmm. that that is interesting cuz i thought this was a japanese audience too cuz of course it does have a lot it does have some japanese writing in it but
0: yeah well, not in this first story in the second story a lot of the sound effects and stuff were actually written in japanese but we'll get oh. to that in the next story but all this is written in
1: english well actually i'm talking about on the cover under yeah. uchu there are yeah. some japanese uh, characters there and then on the uh, first page coming in again t- on the title page Right, yeah, it, and Uch- it, Uchu, yeah, Uchu is actually the name of this book, and it means space, cool, yeah, I didn't know what that was, I was that a number, like, it, like, Ocho, but, uh, I see in your notes, you say it's space, that's pretty cool,
0: yeah, and like I said, this is the third book, so the, the other two books, uh, I don't have, well, I have the titles right here, so, but we'll go into them when we review those, but I think one of them means like a final frontier, and I forgot what the other one means. Appropriate titles. Yep, very. So uh, I, I don't really have a lot to say about this one. Uh, no. I was a little confused why Kirk was carrying around the axe. I mean, was he wearing using it as a weapon, or was he really hurt and he was kind of using it as a cane? Uh, I think his initial thing was weapon. Right, but they're here on page 20 when he first gets up from behind the rock after yeah. he throws those couple of rocks. Yep. Uh, it looks like he's kind of leaning on it. Like he's yep. like, see the little wiggle lines and stuff? So yep. I was wondering, and his, and his pants are a little ripped, so I thought maybe they were trying to imply that he was injured in some way. But he never acts hurt any any other time of the one, that one page.
1: Yeah, he's pretty spry everywhere else. But when he did grab the uh, axe, uh, X number of pages before, I think he was lo- grabbing it for as a weapon.
0: Because he just got that big boulder thrown at him, and then he grabs that that uh, that axe, and right. he looks ready for action.
1: Now, now that's interesting that um, the Giro, which is obviously a formidable creature, is bothering with throwing sticks and uh, rocks. Well, they were keeping the tension up, so that you kept thinking oh. that Kirk was being attacked by Kring, and Kring was being attacked by Kirk. I, I completely agree with... Uh, with the interesting uh, way it was presented, but I'm just saying, look at this thing. I mean, it's a big, nasty monster with big claws and everything. It's like... He looks like something
0: that would be in the Men in Black show.
1: Hmm. Yeah. And he has, like, like almost
0: like... He has three eyes, a big, gigantic mouth, uh, and then, like, dreadlock-looking things coming off the head. Right. He looks pretty cool. And then his body's kind of like a gremlin from the old gremlin show because he has, like, a little tail.
1: Mm. yeah. Smooth body, looks like. Uh, but, yeah. Yep, yep, yep. I think the, uh, I think, I like towards the end where uh, Kring is killed. I, I I like how they do it, and I think they drew it pretty cool. You know, the four guys with what appears to be like pain sticks or something. Right. Just come in from the four, from four corners and just, you know, just electrocute him to death. That's right. And then he's like, today is a good day to die. Exactly. A guy with honor. Exactly. Very Klingon-y. Right. And before he dies as I had mentioned before, I like how he basically calls out all the people the three people in specific who uh is doing this to him and yep. uh and why they're doing it. I like that. Now it doesn't seem to stop anything. He dies anyway, but eh, eh you know. If you're going to die, you might as well uh call a spade a spade and go right. Out and receiving. I like how he said, "Yes, I
0: have the power to kill. I had the power to kill Kirk, but to do so would be dishonorable and without honor" We do not fight as warriors, but as cowards. Mm-hmm. And Then he basically calls everybody there by name a coward and and why they're a coward. Yep. I, I thought it was great. Yep. So and that's that's all writing, my friend. That's all good stuff on the page. Hey, real quick, a couple pages earlier, uh, when Kirk saves uh, Kring from falling into the uh, the hole, mm-hmm. it reminded me of that scene in Star Trek Three when they're on the Genesis planet and Christopher oh, yeah. Lloyd's character falls in and. Oh yeah. He's like holding on to Kirk's boot and Kirk just starts kicking him in the face and he's like I am through with you.
1: <laughs> I have had
0: enough oh, of you. <laughs> I just remember I always liked that scene very uh very overdone. <laughs> yeah. But that
1: yeah, but it's Kirk. It's with Shatner. Come on. He's the, he's the big bop, he's the big bopper. Uh but of course, you know, even though that Klingon was personally responsible for killing his son. He went ahead and tried to save him at first. Yep, he was. He was. He was not good. Christop-
0: Christopher Lloyd. That's like the only time I ever remember him playing a, a villain except for maybe in Roger Rabbit or something.
1: <laughs> he usually yeah. plays the the good guy or the yeah, buffoon. Yeah, he does. And casting him in that role, it was like, who? I mean, after being so, so familiar with him, especially as Reverend Jim in Taxi, mm-hmm. it's like, who could have imagine that he would do such a pretty good job uh, playing a Klingon. But I must say, if I had never seen him before in anything else, I would have been more impressed with his job playing a Klingon. Because as he talked, I just could not get Reverend the Reverend Jim character out of my head. Oh, really? I could not do it. You know, see, when I was a kid and saw this, I had never really
0: watched Taxi, because yeah. Star Trek Three came out when I was pretty young. Um, so I, I didn't put two and two together until way later.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then I was reminded of it because I saw a stand-up comedian one time that, wa- that did a little joke on it on stage where he was going, Christopher Lloyd, as a Klingon, pops up in the middle of the Star Trek movie. It's like, I'm going, what's going on here? <laughs> and then he's going, Captain Kirk, give me Genesis. You know, with more of a uh, Reverend Jim style. It was very right. funny stuff. Right. It was great stuff. <laughs>
0: Well uh uh and I, David Laroquett was also in that movie as one of the Klingons. Was so, he? Yeah. I didn't know that. He plays the the Klingon Helmsman. Uh so he's, he had to go back and look at that. Too. Yeah. Huh.
1: Before he was famous, I suppose. See, I don't know. He, Chronologically?
0: Well, he was in that uh he was You're in what, the night? first first uh Texas Chainsaw Massacre, so he must have been around for a long time. I mean, I guess he's not famous, but...
1: You're kidding me. John Larroquette was in Texas Chainsaw Massacre?
0: Yeah, he was uh, the narrator. So at the beginning and end when they had the narration uh, in the original, it was him. And then when they remade it, uh, when Michael Bay remade it a few years ago, uh, he reprised his role and was the narrator again. uh, Again, I
1: will have to take a look at that one.
0: But yeah, so uh, yeah, Dan from Night Court was a uh, was a Klingon along with Reverend Jim. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, what they need to get is Latka in there, and then it'll be the match set. Okay. Yeah. So excellent one. All Should right. we Move on to number hey,
0: three. Just real quick, super quick. I liked it when when the Klingons said that he had similar uh, philosophers to uh, I forgot the guy who wrote the original. Um, Art of War. Uh, Sun, Sun, Sun Chu. Sun Chu, right. But it reminded me of in Star Trek VI when, uh, the Klingon there, and I forgot his name, Kang, mm-hmm. says that, uh, you haven't heard Hamlet until you've heard it in the original Shakespeare, or original Klingon. And uh, I just thought that was funny. I, I don't know if that's what they were getting at, that, you know, that the Art of War is also, uh, was originally in Klingon or whatever. <laughs> yeah, adopting
1: all of the great, uh, but uh, and, and this is
0: something that I have had to look up in the past before we did this podcast because I didn't know where this came from. But a uh, the the saying uh, that that Khan attributes to the Klingons that says, um, "Revenge is a dish, a dish best, best served, served cold. cold." It's very cold in space.
1: Of yes. course, the I think the last bit was added on. But
0: well, actually, that that saying came from a novel, a French novel from 1782. So I had to look it up a long time ago because wow, I I, I could tell which came first the Khan reference to a dish best served cold or uh, Mr. Freeze on the Batman <laughs> in the Batman comics. He says it all the time. So I was yeah. like you know I was like it, did Khan I mean did they steal that from Mr. Freeze or did Mr. Freeze just kind of start using that once that became uh, famous in the Star Trek movie? But oh no, neither one of them uh, originated it. It's from 1782. Uh ah,
1: and I assume he didn't ha- – the original version didn't have the space part. No, but, okay. it, it
0: just said uh, revenge is a, di- a dish best served cold. All right, so let's just go ahead and jump straight into the second chapter of the this this manga series, uh, and it's called Bandai. And it is written by another pretty famous Star Trek writer, uh, David Gerald. Yes. Is that how you say his name?
1: I think and, so. And and it could also be pronounced the, the title could be uh Bandy. Uh, Bandy. Yeah. But I really don't know because they don't they don't give you a pronunciation key in these things.
0: And there's a there's a toy company called Bandai and it's spelt that way. It's a Japanese toy company, so I just assume that's how you would pronounce it. Cool. But you're right, it could be Bandy. Alright, so uh David Gerald is uh most famous in Star Trek Land for writing the the very famous episode of the trouble with tribbles. Yes, and uh, he also was one of the writers of at least the pilot of uh, Star Trek: The Next Generation. So I know that he he had some he did some work on that, and in fact he wrote the novelization uh, for the first movie or for the first uh, pilot. So when the novelization of Counter and Farboy came out, he was the author of that. So
1: huh. I didn't know that.
0: And another curious thing, kind of off-subject, uh, the the alien race that's in uh, Encounter at Firepoint, the one that's capturing that uh, big jellyfish thing, right? they're called Bandy, B-A-N-D-I. Oh. Hmm. So interesting little tidbit. All right, so let's go straight into the synopsis now. So Kirk and Spock are walking down the halls of the Enterprise when Chekov runs up to them and asks them, Did you see it? He slows down to tell them that he's looking for a walking teddy bear who stole his sandwich. Uh, Sulu and a crewman named Altman show up, and uh, they're looking for the bear as well. Uh, Kirk orders them to their stations, and once they're gone, he spots the bear, and uh, he uh, starts to chase it. Assume they catch it because the next shot shows a bunch of the crewmen lined up in in a scene very similar to the Trouble with Tribbles where all the crewmen are being in a line, and Kirk's, like, walking uh, down, scolding them. And Altman explains that the, the bear is their mascot. All right, so uh, Spock and McCoy analyze the bear, uh, which I think they do start referring to as Bandy or Bandai. Uh, and they discover that it projects its emotions onto those around it. So Spock smugly informs them that he will be immune to the effects, uh, and Kirk orders that it's kept in a stasis tube, which is just like this big glass container. Uh, until they can get to uh, a biological preserve and, and drop it off. Sometime later, uh, Kirk and Spock arrive on the bridge, and there, sitting in the captain's chair, is the bear. Kirk explains that this is the fourth time he's gotten loose, and he orders uh, security to take the bear back to its stasis tube, and the security officer grumbles something like, I'll take you so that the big bad captain can't hurt you no more. Uh, Spock uh, tells Captain Kirk... Uh, um, or Spock speaking to Captain Kirk, and explains that uh, how everybody uh, is uh, is on like this emotional roller coaster where they'll be uh, really happy one minute and then really rot with like despair the next. And it's all coming from uh, the the bear being in the cage. To try to shield the crew from these effects, Scotty puts the stasis tube as far as he can from anyone, which is like a storage area, I'm assuming somewhere in engineering. And then just then, the bear, like, blasts them with all this uh, evil thought waves. So everybody retreats from that uh, area as fast as they can. Uh, In a conference room, Spock is shaking it. uh, He's, like, shaking, and he has his hand on the table, and he basically tells Kirk that he's not immune to the effects of the bear after all. So now we cut to a a shot of the exterior of the Enterprise and we see a Klingon war fleet uh, coming up and it starts attacking the Enterprise. Uh, Scotty informs Kirk that the shields are down and that they're being boarded. Uh, The boarding party consists of several Klingons, a Gorn firing a gun, and a Mugatu. Uh, Spock is then shot and (laughs) killed. Once Spock is killed, Kirk wakes up in his bed and he looks over and sitting on the bed is the bandy bear. Uh, Spock McCoy <laughs> Spock McCoy and Kirk uh, talk about their options since everyone is becoming affected by the bear. Spock suggests terminating it, uh, but Kirk wants to think of another way, uh, but I guess the bear overhears the termination part, and he basically turns the whole crew against the three of them. So uh, as the security team starts shooting at them, they're able to escape down uh, a Jeffreys tube, uh, and they end up in like this huge weapons locker. It's this big armory that I've never seen before in Star Trek. But, I mean, there's all kinds of weapons there. Uh, And Kirk uh, then comes up with a plan that uh, he's going to befriend it. Uh, He starts to think of all the people he loves and uh, funny thoughts, uh, like the thing that happens with the trouble with Tribbles. And he walks up to the bear thinking of all these great things. And the bear ends up – oh, he actually thinks about how much he likes the bear, how much he loves the bear. And then the bear just jumps in his arms. And the whole crew of the Enterprise just instantly fall in love with each other or just start explaining how much they love one another. Um, As they're doing all this, or as the bear is doing all this, uh, Spot nerve pinches the bear, and and everybody just snaps back to normal. The bear basically is able to stay unconscious until they can get to the preserve, and that's the end. So
1: what would you think? Um, I thought that there were parts of this story that was very funny. I thought the uh, humor in it was very good at points in time. Uh, But overall, again, the bear controlling the crew uh, through emotions and projecting emotions and stuff like that. Doesn't it sound familiar? Have we we talked about that? Have I heard that somewhere before? Hmm. Yes, I think I have.
0: Yes. So I I, kind of chose these two stories to be in the same show just because... They're so similar to each other. Yeah, and, and I don't have any proof of this at all. Zero proof. But um, when David Ger- uh, Gerald, uh, when he was trying to get a job writing uh, for next uh, Star Trek, he sent in three outlines. One of them was what ultimately became The Trouble with Tribbles, which he called Fuzzies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I forgot what the second one was. But the third one was called Bandai. And basically, that story involved a cute little animal uh, controlling the Enterprise through its emotions. And I don't know how far he got into it. Um, It's in a book called The Trouble with Tribbles, the birth, sale, and final production of one episode that was released by Pocket Books. Uh, I've seen the book. I've held it in my hands, but I never bought it. But basically, it's written by David Gerald and It basically talks about how he got from you know sending in his outlines, getting rejected, then them calling him back later saying, you know what, this fuzzy story isn't too bad. We'll go ahead and make it. Mm-hmm. But in that book is his original outline for all three of those stories, including the the Bandy book, hmm. uh, which which he came up with that name by it being a cross between Bambi and Banshee. So. Oh. So maybe you're right. Maybe it is supposed to be pronounced D. But anyway, so obviously this outline was somewhere out there uh, back in the 60s when that episode of Star Trek uh, Trouble with Tribbles came out. So I'm wondering if the people who made that Passage to Moav comic had somehow seen that outline and adapted it to that comic book.
1: Just lifted it for their own uses. Could
0: be. As far as we know, because there's no credits on, on uh, in that book at all. Maybe David Gerald wrote it. it that's possible,
1: but he, you know, some authors like to recycle ideas.
0: Well, I mean, he he wrote a, an outline, sent it in, it didn't get picked up, so he didn't get paid for it. So why not sell it to Peter Pan Records or whatever, and then get you know a paycheck out of uh, out of a story he wrote? I don't uh, sure. That or somebody must have read it and pretty much pillaged it for their own use. <laughs>
1: yes, v- v- very, very close the two stories.
0: But yeah, so this one is definitely written by him, and yeah. uh, I thought it was—I thought it was pretty good. It's definitely a comical one, so like yeah. Trouble with Tribbles, like Star Trek IV, going more for the the com- comedic aspect than serious space drama.
1: Yeah, and and I think they hit the uh, nail on the head a few uh, more than once in here. But then there's parts at the end where Kirk is, like, you know, really huggy-feely, and it looks like he's getting ready to French kiss the doggone bandy thing in one scene. It's, like, <laughs> it's a little over the top for me. But
0: Yeah, the, the art style in this one is definitely <coughs> more Pokemon-type art style, mm-hmm. uh, where that first story we, wrote, we read, I was trying to think of a Japanese uh, cartoon series in a similar fashion, and I would think maybe, like, uh, I don't know if you ever watched it, but there was a show called Gatchaman, which was translated into uh, um, uh, Battle of the Planets here in the United States about these uh, these people. Oh, like Voltron, you know, that kind of thing, yeah, where it's right, the right. more serious-looking right. anime style versus this, which is the more cartoony-looking anime right. style. <laughs> but anyways, I, I thought the story was pretty good. It, it's Since it's so much like the other one uh, that we already reviewed, I don't really have a
1: lot of things to talk about it. Yeah, uh, no, but I, I have a few things to say just jumping around a little bit sure. um, I think when they showed the Gorn uh, with the Federation uh, phaser pistol yeah. and one of the Klingons has a um, has a Federation phaser rifle like from where where No Man has gone before oh really I didn't notice that yeah it's like what what the heck's going on here and then you find out it's like a dream thing okay well that makes sense The Mugatu there didn't throw something off? Oh, yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah, the the Mugatu especially. Yeah, so the Mugatu
0: is obviously from uh, the episode Private Little War in the original Ah, series. Right,
1: right, right. There you go.
0: Where he bites bites Kirk with his venomous bite or whatever. Exactly. But what I think is funny about Mugatu, this is kind of off-subject, but uh, um, I don't know if you've ever watched the the movie Zoolander.
1: Yes. That... uh, and um, I, I going to say it wasn't great, but. Uh... Well,
0: Ben Stiller directed and wrote that movie. Right. And Will Ferrell's character in that movie, his name is Mugatu, <laughs> and he has white, curly, like wool-like hair, uh-huh. just like the Mugatu in Star Trek. Right. And there's this one shot in the movie, which, ironically enough, was just on uh, yesterday. So I watched a little bit of it, uh, <laughs> and I noticed that. Will Ferrell's always wearing these like really woolly sweaters and things so he a lot of times he looks like the MuGatu from Star Trek. <laughs> That's
1: great. And of course, I- I'm not sure about uh Will Ferrell but um, Ben Stiller's a big Star Trek fan. Yeah, exactly. He also wrote and directed uh,
0: Cable Guy, which has that great scene where they're at medieval times and and
1: uh, yeah, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. Jim Carrey's at his best when he does Star Trek references. Did you see the, uh, I think it was the, the second Ace Ventura movie when he's on the plane flying to Africa, where where there's a scene where he's in, in, uh, in the plane and he looks out the window and says to the person next to him, there's a man on the plane, on the wing, <laughs> doing just a great, yeah, so I, I, did, I messed it up, but you get the idea. So he from, was, from the Twilight Zone episode. Exactly.
0: That Shatner was, was in. Famously
1: in. And John Lithgow could only pale in comparison in the big screen remake of it.
0: I thought he did a pretty good job. John Lithgow. Oh come on.
1: I mean compared to, to Shatner? Ah. Yeah, no, he he did do it. He did it. actually. The uh, the movie one I thought was a lot better, even though I I thought I thought the uh, the Gremlin was much better. Yeah, he looked and, and cool. And when the window opened up on the plane, which was totally unlikely, and and, and stuck his hand on Lithgow's face. And literally, he's gonna rip his hat off. And instead, he goes ah, ah, ah with his finger. That was great. I love that. Yeah. And I
0: don't remember that being in the original Twilight Zone. I no. thought he
1: just he just goes crazy there in he, his seat. And he just goes go. crazy. Yeah.
0: And then you see the ripped up uh, metal. You know, right. Later. When he when it when he gets carted
1: away in the ambulance to, the loony bin. to right.
0: go to the looney bin.
1: Uh, another thing is, um, I love the the as you mentioned the weapons area, which is like something right out of the Matrix. Big old huge room with all these different weapons, flamethrower looking things and batlets in there. What you see a like... Oh, is that what that is? I, th- I think. I actually wrote in my notes I was like, What is that little
0: Robin mask looking thing? I thought it was some <laughs> sort of like handcuffs or something.
1: Yeah, no, it uh, I think it's I think it's a badly drawn batleth.
0: Well, it's it's in the background, so they didn't put a lot of detail on it. But yeah, no, it no. might be a Bat-Lift now that I look at it. And what else is there worth? Uh, well, there's just... like shields and stuff there uh, underneath the Bat-Lift. Yeah, like there's I'm like not sure what shields, that's about. Like Greek-type shields, those right. little round
1: ones. I don't get that. And then the, uh, the jellyfish-looking things above the shields? I don't know what that is. Maybe it's like some kind of armor? I don't know. I but don't know. And on the right there's uh, like some kind of M16s with grenade launchers, uh maybe a little ala um aliens, I don't know. Yeah, well, it looks like the pulse rifles from aliens. And uh, and then there's like some missiles just yeah, just that, sitting there cuz you know look, you, you, there's frequent that you need a missile, you know, just in case somebody tries to take over the ship,
0: which doesn't look anything like the photon torpedo/coffin slash coffin that we know no.
1: they look like. Exactly. So, anyway, <laughs> Interesting. Uh, somebody but, went wacko with it, with this particular drawing.
0: Right. But And when I first saw that, I rolled my eyes, and I was like, there's not a big arsenal like that in the Enterprise. And then I thought about it. I was like, well, all those people get guns when they go down the planet, so that has to be stored somewhere. So it it is very
1: feasible that this would be there. And there have been episodes when they've referred to the armory. I think it was in the, the infamous third year of the original Star Trek series. And I don't remember the name of the uh, the episode, but again, the Enterprise is getting taken over. And they talk about making it to the armory. Although, I don't remember them actually... I think, I think when they got into it, it was a very unimpressive place, nothing like this. And they just got a few hand favors.
0: Yeah, I don't remember that don't at all.
1: All right, the, only, the last thing I have to say about this is
0: they're on page 38, which is the page where the top the top panel shows the Enterprise and all the little hearts <laughs> and stuff floating around it. Right. And then the, the two panels right underneath that show um, – uh, the first one shows Uhura talking to Sulu, and she says, Mr. Sulu, have I told you how much I love you? And he says, I love you too. I and then love right too. And right next to that is a picture of Scotty and Chekhov, and Scotty says, Mr. Chekhov, you're like a son to me. And then Chekhov is saying, Mr. Scott, you're as good as a real Russian. <laughs> underneath that McCoy's talking to Spock and he's like, Spock, do you know how much I respect you and admire you?
1: <laughs> and then yeah. And then Spock looks so dismayed at that yeah. at McCoy saying that to him. <laughs> And then Spock
0: just nerve pinches the bear, and everybody
1: snaps back to normal, and they're like,
0: what the hell was that about? <laughs> <And all laughs> yeah, I
1: thought I thought that was a funny part where, where, where Spock basically pulls an Indiana Jones and just says, screw this stuff, and just, pfft, yeah. pinch just ends it. But what I wish
0: they would have done on these, these top two panels, I wish they would have had Uhura talking to Scotty uh-huh. so that uh-huh. she could tell Scotty how much she loves him uh-huh. they, they play with that in uh, Star Trek V. Yep. And then, you know, that would free up Sulu so that he could tell Chekhov how much he loved him. <laughs> so, anyways, I, I just, I mean, that was obviously the most cartoony when, when you had all of these little hearts and
1: stuff spewing out of everybody. Yes. Like, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's, luckily, we're not diabetic because it was getting pretty thick with the sugary <laughs> sweetness that was coming off the page.
0: It worked well. I mean, it worked well, I mean, for what they were trying to tell. I mean, they're telling a story about a bear that, was so happy that Kirk loved him that his love infused the whole ship and I don't know. It it works for the story, I
1: thought. Yeah, it it was funny. And then at the end, for their little moment of humor, uh, they got McCoy saying uh, on the bridge, uh, so tell us, Spock, what did it feel like to be the target of so much love? And then uh, Spock says, it was embarrassing. And then Kirk says, I didn't say anything, did I? So I kind of like that, 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 that. I like that joke. Yeah, and we that, didn't we didn't say what he
0: said, but right before he does the nerve pinch, Kirk's actually saying, "Spock, I ever told you how much I
1: care about you?" <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then, then after Kirk says, "I didn't say anything, did I?" And then uh, Spock says, "Nothing. I'll repeat, Captain."
0: Yeah, I thought that was that was great. Straight from the show. I mean, the show was always having those little jokes at the end. Yeah. Exactly. So here, uh, I think the joke works. About, you know, I didn't say anything embarrassing, did I? Whereas, in that first story, where the 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 wall was the one taking over the ship, uh, I didn't like the joke about Merez being a mother, just because she's feline, and so is the cat that's actually having the babies. It's just, it was just, that wasn't a funny joke to me. But this one, I do think was pretty funny. So, anything else on that one? No. Normally at this time we would go and do the Elsewhere in the Star Trek universe, but because these stories were published so far apart, one in 1975 and the other one in 2008, uh, we are going to skip that section and uh, just close it off. Um, do we have a reading list for next week, kid? Yeah, actually you have it, yes. We were thinking about doing The New Frontier a couple of uh, the New Frontier was the Peter David spinoff series. Uh, that was a book series that has had a total of six comic books based in it. So we were thinking about doing that one.
1: New Frontier. Uh, that, that is a good series. I, I've definitely read the novelizations, the novels, uh, which, which are quite good, with Captain Maka NZ. Yeah, Mikey, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that. But that's the pronunciation. You've got to get the pronunciation right. Maka NZ. Because yeah. he is alien. The first. He's- Lead alien. Captain. At least that I'm aware of. Well, Spock was captain. Well, well, eventually. Okay, fine.
0: You know, until you said that, I never thought that about there was never an alien captain.
1: Well, as the regular lead character. Right. Yeah, you're right. I just never thought of it. Until, at least until uh, New Frontiers. And of course, uh, quite a different background MacKenzie has from the captains. So. Right. Yeah, I think the comic books delve in that in that
0: uh, that background a little bit as flashbacks. But I guess we can get into that. So, so next episode we'll do that one, the Wildstorm one issue. They did a one shot, and then IDW has a five part miniseries. So we'll do the first two, one or two issues of that, um, and then we'll excellent we'll finish it off in a second new frontier episode so so we'll do that next week and then we'll do the early voyages which I really liked cuz you know I liked I liked the character of number 1 um and I like Pike and I
1: like Spock so
0: uh, and that series is actually pretty good
1: yep could, all right could you yeah. I had heard that the actor who I keep on forgetting his name who played uh, Christopher Pike in the first pilot what was it Jeff, uh Jeffrey Hunter, Hunter. There you yep. go. Jeffrey Hunter, exactly. I understand it was like his wife that was counseling against him, you know, going into into that series. Um, oh, really? So, but it would have been, so he turned down the, the you know, continuing on to the real series, and that's where William Shatner came into it. Could you imagine how different the series would have been? Uh, how many, probably fewer uh, instances of overacting would have taken place if, uh, if uh, Jeffrey Hunter took the uh, took the role uh, ongoing, as opposed to uh, Shatner. So is that is that I had never heard that before. The the yeah. the reason
0: I always heard was that uh, when the pilot got retooled, uh, that they didn't want Hunter to come back because he was too dry. That they wanted somebody more action and because they really wanted to build up the whole Wild West and space type thing. Oh, and so no, that's not what I read. That's weird because I actually watched. What's the mirror? the The first Mirror Universe episode. Uh, mirror, 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 mirror. Right. I just watched that day before yesterday with the audio commentary, and uh-huh. and they were mentioning that that the reason why uh, Shatner was brought in was because they wanted somebody with more like a they wanted a more action based character, um, and that's why Spock became. Emotionalists was because they wanted somebody to be the you know the the straight man, which which wasn't Spock's original role, because in that in that first Cage pilot, he's mm-hmm. smiling and laughing and things like that, so he's a little different character. So what they were saying in that in that commentary was that you know they they basically retooled Spock's character to be the straight man, which was Pike's character in the
1: original pilot. Well, so that's that's interesting. That is interesting. I never heard that before. I hadn't either. I, I, I heard that they definitely wanted to get rid of, number one, a female as the first officer. Right. And I had heard it was the wife of Jeffrey Hunter that, that basically was instrumental in him turning down an ongoing part in it. Huh. Uh, and I don't remember why they said they promoted Spock to first officer. I don't remember ever reading about a reason behind that, except that you know, I guess they might have liked the character. But uh, interesting hearing this, and the commentary was by who? Judith and Garfield Reeves Stevens, or
0: whatever the oh the, writers, the writers. Uh, oh, yeah, they wrote they were, the episode. They didn't write the episode, but they were the commentary just because I guess they're they're pretty knowledgeable in Star Trek.
1: Oh, and cool. you know they
0: were the story arc writers for Enterprise. I don't know why they got picked to do the commentary on this this random episode of Star Trek, but it was pretty huh.
1: interesting. It was pretty interesting uh, commentary. But that's funny cuz yeah, I I, I got to listen to more of those because uh I had read when I was younger multiple books about Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Uh one by David gerald Uh you know maybe the one you actually you mentioned. Oh, that's uh, that, funny. That's talked about the uh, the Genesis. It was definitely a a, a book talking about uh, the trouble with Tribbles. Oh, that's and probably that was probably it. It probably was. Although I don't remember well it was a long time that I read it. Um and then another one, uh, I think, by Gene Elcoon, but um, that that talked about the series. I just I was just a, a, a stupid big fan back then. <laughs> I just read all just tons of stuff, as apparently you were too. Something we have in common. Right. Go figure that we're doing this now. Exactly. So
0: that, that's interesting. Anyways, we are way off subject. So let's let's just go ahead and close off this uh, this this episode. Excellent.
1: Episode ten. All right. Double take- double digits. Yeah, that's so right. right. We're almost uh, we're almost teenagers now. There you go. So take care, everybody. Take care, everybody. And uh, come back again to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music, stories, and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at star-t-comic-book-review at gmail.com.